0: From Number 5 Chambers, I'm Richard Kimblin. This is The Planning Podcast. This week, planning litigation, time scales, social distancing, COVID consequences for the courts. And where have you been locked down? What is a dwelling? With Jack Smythe and Hashim Mohammed, planning and environmental barristers at Number 5 Chambers, The Planning Podcast asks, what happens if a scheme finds itself quarantined in the Court of Appeal? And what happens if a barrister's study becomes a courtroom? Jack, Hashi, how are you? Good, thank you, Richard. Very well, thank you, Richard. Good to hear you both. Now, Jack, what's been going on in the Court of Appeal? Have you you had any recent experience of quarantine of cases in the Court of Appeal?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of us have, um, Richard. Since its establishment, the Planning Court has prided itself on being a model of celerity. It's done a sterling job of meeting the ambitious targets set upon it. So most of us are familiar that there are targets set so that applications for judicial review and statutory review should be determined within three weeks of filing of the Acknowledgement of Service that renewal hearings where permission has been refused on the papers should be listed within a month of receipt of the request and that statutory reviews themselves should be heard within six months from the moment they were issued. But it's been a frustrating feature for those of us working in planning litigation that having enjoyed the speed and alacrity of the planning court, one then hits a bottleneck if permission is sought from the Court of appeal. An important explanation for this is the fact that those ambitious targets, which the judges of the planning court must labour under, do not apply to the court of appeal. Um, There's a case, um, Richard, which we were both involved in, which I think beautifully illustrates the problem. Um, It was an application for judicial review in the matter of CPJ Environmental Services Limited and Derbyshire Dales District Council. Um, I was for the local authority and you were for the interested party, and we were both resisting the challenge. Both our clients filed acknowledgement of service, um, our defences effectively, by the 7th of December 2018. And Mrs Justice Andrews dealt with the matter on the papers and gave a detailed and lengthy decision refusing permission and marking it as totally without merit On the 2nd of February last year 2019. Within a week the claimant company had applied for permission to appeal to the Court of Appeal but the Court of Appeal only refused permission on the 11th of September 2019. So it took the Court of Appeal seven months despite chasing um, by you Richard um, and your clients and an application for expedition um, for what took the planning court less than two months notwithstanding the intervening Christmas break. So this stands as a stark example of the delay and congestion when one tries to go upstairs to the Court of Appeal. Um, I don't say that um, the Derbyshire Dales case um, is necessarily representative. It's perhaps a more egregious example, but it does show the problem, which is not uncommon. Um, So having considered the timing gripe, um, what trends are emerging as to the prospects of success? Um, Here, Richard, the paper you've done um, has revealed some pretty breathtaking figures. So in the last three years, the success rate in planning and environmental appeals in the Court of Appeal is 25%. So three in four litigants fail in the Court of Appeal, as against a success rate of 40% for all other non-planning cases. Um, So that's a differential Um, which is fairly stark. And last year, the success rate in planning cases plummeted dramatically um, to 7%. So why is there such a stark difference emerging? Well, part of the reason, as you explore in your paper, Richard, is what Mr Justice J has termed the mantra of planning judgment. And those of us who act for defendants and interested parties will be familiar with the exercise seeking to characterise the gripes of a claimant as merely a quibble of planning judgement. So if you can place the criticisms of a claimant in a box entitled planning judgement, an error of law will not be established. That judges give a greater leeway to planning decision makers than is the case in other areas of law does not of course explain why the success rate is far lower in the Court of Appeal as that reticence um, to interfere with planning judgments would apply with equal force below in the planning court. It seems to me likely that the differential can be best explained by the fact that the Court of Appeal has a greater appetite to entertain planning cases, notwithstanding the fact that they are unlikely to succeed on the basis that they raise important matters of general applicability. And one can see that with the numerous judgments of Lord Justice Limblom on the interpretation of parts of the NPPF, the framework. Notwithstanding the underlying merits of a particular claim, the Court of Appeal has been eager to use cases to end policy controversies, and we've seen that with our old friend the tilted balance, paragraph four of the framework. So, when is it engaged, and how does it operate, and um, when is a particular policy for housing um, characterised as out of date. Um, Some of us will be familiar with the valued landscapes. So when is a landscape a valued landscape in accordance of paragraph 170 of the framework? So this all illustrates the role of the Court of Appeal to clarify the law rather than simply adjudicate on whether the judgment of the court below was sound or not.
0: Now, Jack, is, what you're dealing with there is firstly applications for permission, and secondly prospects in the Court of Appeal. And I just wanted to just pick up on applications for permission. If the if, if the planning court says no, you you cannot proceed to a substantive hearing. Permission refused. Is there a right of access to the Court of Appeal to say that the Planning Court has got that wrong?
1: Yes, there is.
0: And if permission is refused in the Planning Court and the claimant then pursues the question of permission, that's the circumstance that you are seeking to exemplify by the, the CPJ case, is that it? Yes, that's right, Richard. OK. And then the second point was as to prospects. If somebody fails in the planning court, but the Court of Appeal is interested and wants to uh, have a look at that again. You're then explaining to us what the prospects of succeeding are if one looks at just at the statistics.
1: Yes. So in other words, the fact that you get permission from the Court of Appeal and they express an eagerness to hear your case shouldn't be taken as an indication that the Court of Appeal is likely to look fondly upon your appeal. Because part of the role of the Court of Appeal is effectively educative. It's about clarifying the law and picking cases which may further that objective. Got it.
0: Now, uh, we've had permission. Uh, we've had prospects. We're going to turn to some more P's. Uh, what are the practical points uh, for those at the litigation coalface, Jack?
1: Well, whenever national policy has changed, uncertainty is generated Um, And some of that will require clarification by the Court of Appeal. Um, For those who want to get their cases into the Court of Appeal, it's important to couch the application in terms of the wider applicability of the point of controversy. So not just focused on the underlying merits of your particular case, but trying to look for broader importance. Um, We all know that reasons challenges, so challenges about a decision maker not giving adequate reasons, have long been deprecated. That's been true throughout my 12 years at the Bar. I think what has changed is that under Lord Justice Limblom, the main um, planning judge in the Court of Appeal, and Mr Justice Helgate, the um, head of the planning court in the High Court, um, is the reinforcement of the deference to be given to planning decision makers and how one ought to proceed on the presumption that they have properly understood policy unless the contrary can be shown. So um, decision letters and reports to committee, which the usual fertile ground for um, making challenges are to be read more benevolently than perhaps they were a decade ago. I ask rhetorically which sorts of cases are more likely to succeed. Well, it seems to me it will be those that centre around the proper meaning of policy. That's because policy is objective and has an objective meaning, and the words of policy have a single meaning. So our old friend planning judgment can't come to the rescue of the decision maker, because even if the decision maker's interpretation of policy is reasonable – Um, If the court finds that a different interpretation is, in fact, the correct one, then the fact that the decision makers acted reasonably doesn't save them.
0: Jack, that was a fantastic excursion uh, all the way from uh, starting off a claim in the planning court to uh, the Court of Appeal. Thank you very much. Let's turn now to Hashi. Hashi, have you read the paper?
2: Yes, I have. This is a fantastic uh, paper, and I think you're being very modest, Dr Kimblin, about its quality.
0: <laughs> ah, well, I shall, try, I shall try not to be so modest in future. I'll work on it, Hashi. I'll work on it.
2: I'll work on it. <laughs> it it's, it's a fantastic paper, and I think what struck, struck me from everything I read in there and what, what Jack was talking about is just how much of a significant impact something like this can have on development if, for example, as you point out in, in your paper, that permission to appeal can take up to 20 weeks and an appeal against refusal by the Planning Court for permission could hamper development by seven whole months, that's not really good for the economy as a whole. And it certainly won't be good for the economy in a sort of post-COVID-19 recovery.
0: Yeah, it, it's no happy story, is it? Um, I call it a glitch in the routine. And uh it it really is a gap. Um I don't understand why the 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 rules have left that gap totally without merit in the planning court, but then can go and sit quarantined in the Court of Appeal for for months. Uh, it's extraordinary. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Now you've you've been busy in the planning court, hashi.
2: I have, I have, and I and I have had uh two remote hearings in the High Court already. And I've got one coming up next week. The first I had uh, before uh, Mrs Justice Lang, and I'm waiting for the judgment on that. And another matter in which uh, I had before Mrs Justice Leaven, who uh, gave judgment earlier this week. Uh, Before I get to that case later on, I just thought I'd pick up just three broad points that, that are emerging out of the planning court and its approach to hearings. Um, remote hearings, as we now call them, and we have a protocol for them now um, from um, Mr. Justice Holgate, who is, as Jack had pointed out earlier, uh, the, the, the sort of chief of the high court, the planning court at the moment. But the three points that I just wanted to pick up was that the high court has obviously been very keen to move matters along. They have really made it clear that things need to happen. They're not prepared to postpone hearings and they're prepared to make them work as quickly as possible. So the first lesson for all practitioners in this context is that we must all adapt. And so it is, first of all, very clear now, however complicated your case is more than likely that it will get on. Second, uh, those with the most convincing and clear arguments on the papers and the skeleton arguments are, to my judgment, with a distinct advantage before the matters begin. The reason I say that is because whereas before you might put together a skeleton argument that's relatively skeletal and that you prepare to develop your arguments in the courtroom, now you do not have that provision. You will have to do it from your own uh, office, living room, shed, wherever it is that you're going to be trying to persuade a judge. But it's clear to me that having done these hearings now, uh, a few of them already, that actually the judges will be doing things early. They've asked they asked for skeleton arguments early and they'll be doing a lot of reading early, which suggests that by the time you get to the hearing, they will be ready uh, to hear matters in a way that I think they weren't necessarily always ready when we were being uh, presented in person. So. An advantage to the most convincing, clear arguments on the papers. And the third is that it's also becoming, for me anyway, uh, clear that part of the future will be remote hearings in the way that we're being shown now. So even after the post-COVID world, I still see a a possibility whereby we will still be having hearings in the remote way in which we have developed now, but do I think that they are the future in a way that suggests that we will do away with in-person hearings? I don't think so. We are human beings and as those kind of human beings that deeply need other people's faces to look at and persuade and listen to, I don't think, thankfully, that in-person hearings are going to be scrapped after this.
0: Well, it's a judge's job to listen and decide. And you certainly pick up a lot, don't you? When when you're face to face and the body language is there, things are either being written down or not. uh, Sitting back, uh, sitting forward, all of those things, they're so important, aren't they?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it makes a difference to how you react, what you say, when you say it, how you say it and so on.
0: Now, uh, one of those two uh, remote hearings that you've done recently is a case before Mrs Justice Leaven, um, where of all things to be decided during the course of a lockdown, you were interested in uh, trying to understand what a dwelling house
2: is. Yes, yes. And this is a a case that had just recently been given judgment, which was a a case brought by Wiltshire Council uh, against an aptly named interested party, Mr. House. I love it. Mr. Mr. House. Brilliant. Yes, it's it's brilliant, isn't it? Spelt, uh, to be clear, H-O-W-S-E. And the facts of the case were very, very simple. Permission was sought for the change of use of an annexed accommodation from ancillary to independent residential accommodation. Now, it was accepted in this case that the application would not meet the local policy, but the question was whether or not it fell under one of the exceptions under paragraph 79D of the framework. Now, the core of that paragraph and the dispute really was about what is meant by the word dwelling in paragraph 79d. This is the paragraph that allows that exception to to, to permit development where it would involve a subdivision of an existing residential dwelling. That's the wording in 79d, existing residential dwelling. What would the subdividing of that mean? The council were challenging an inspector's analysis that the existing residential dwelling meant, for example, something wider than a building, possibly a planning unit, and that therefore there's a wide interpretation. The council for whom I was acting did not accept this, and in particular, they were concerned for a rural development in a rural location for a rural authority. It would have severe consequences. So the council's view was simply that it should be a narrower interpretation and that the intention behind this provision in the policy, they, uh, we argued, was that the dividing line really ran through the middle of an existing residential building rather than through the garden between two buildings, which is what the interested party was arguing for. So in other words, the subdivision of an existing residential dwelling on what is meant by dwelling in this scenario is a building that is being subdivided, not a planning unit or not buildings within the curtilage. That narrow interpretation was also necessary, the council argued, because for rural authorities, it would mean that people would be picking any particular building and deciding that it ought to be an independent annex. The Secretary of State in this case who had conceded in the matter, was actually present at the hearing, and presented arguments as to why the council and my client were correct in our interpretation, and they supported us in that case. The judgment, and you can find the details of what that judgment said at paragraphs 26 to 34, but effectively, the judge's findings agreed with the council and the Secretary of State, and that the term dwelling in this scenario should be given a narrower interpretation. It's obvious also now that this is an important judgment for most authorities, but also critically for development control as a whole. Got it.
0: So, uh, Hashi, uh, you were successful. Congratulations uh, on that success in the High Court. Um, we have put on Chamber's website a link to that judgment for those who want to pick that up uh, and have that uh, available to them. Uh, thank you for that uh, whistle stop tour through that case but also for your valuable insight into remote hearings that was terrific thank you now let, tell me this at a remote hearing uh, are you allowed to play music
2: <laughs> so that's a very good question because what,
0: what i had in what i had in <laughs> mind I, I was thinking madness i was thinking i was thinking our house <laughs>
2: definitely you can play whatever you like provided you remember to use the mute button (laughs) (laughs) well done both
0: thank you very much indeed thank you
2: very much Richard
0: you have been listening to the planning podcast the uh, planning podcast uh, returns next week on the topic of enforcement until then stay safe and thank you for listening